You're listening to the Inside Study Abroad podcast, episode number 37 with Karen McBride. Welcome to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts. In this show, we explore the world of international education and meaningful travel with some fascinating guests, a little friendly debate, and a whole lot of practical advice. Let's get going. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts. Before we dive into today's podcast interview with Karen McBride, I have a few announcements, updates, housekeeping, all the things. So first of all, we are looking for new guests to be on the podcast. We want to get back into a more consistent groove, releasing a new podcast interview every single week. And so we would love to discover new amazing people in the international education and meaningful travel field who have a cool story to share and something to teach the rest of the international ed professional community. So if that's you or if that's someone you know, please email us at hello at insidestudyabroad.com. Let us know that you'd like to be considered for the podcast. Of course, we can't guarantee everybody will be on the podcast, but we're really looking for people who have something tactical and actionable that they can teach other people. Some some lessons or some strategies, uh, seven tips to do X, Y, or Z. We want these episodes to be really educational and of course, inspirational in the fact that we still wanna share people's story, but it's not just a storytelling podcast. So we want people to walk away feeling like, oh, I can do something a little bit better in my work. So if that's you, please email us. Let us know you'd want to be on the show and we'll get that conversation going. The next thing I want to let you all know is that next week we're releasing our first lab in our Global Pro Labs training series. And our first one is all about marketing and recruitment. I'm probably most excited about this one just because this is uh, my jam. Marketing and recruitment is what I love. It's my zone of genius. And I've been fine-tuning all the content over the last couple of weeks. I'm so excited to be taking you all behind the scenes and behind the curtain of what goes into making a really robust, uh, meaningful marketing campaign. And so if you want to join this next lab, it's happening next week, just go to insidestudyabroad.com slash labs, and you'll be able to find all the information about all the labs there, but you'll also be able to opt in to just the marketing lab. Of course, if you'd like to opt in to all five marketing labs that we're releasing in 2021, you can purchase the bundle as well. But if you're just interested in marketing, awesome. There's going to be an option there for you. We are going to have a discount code that I'm releasing to our email list. So if you're not on our email list, make sure that you go sign up at insidestudyabroad.com slash subscribe so you can get access to that discount code. All right, that's all for the announcements. Let's go to the show. Welcome to Inside Chat. It's been a minute since you've seen us. I'm here with my amazing co-host, Samantha Cooper, and our guest today, 
Dr. Karen McBride. Okay. So today we're talking um, all about climate change and the role that international education um, plays on this very big issue in our society and our world. And our guest today is Karen McBride. She's the founder and president of Bound International. She's been working in international education for 16 years. So as a result, she's got a pretty impressive resume. She's done all the things. And I'm going to let her tell you about some of those in a minute, but she's, it's included joining the Peace Corps, becoming a Fulbright specialist and previously serving as a, as the chair of the education abroad knowledge community at NAFSA. And of course, working with several universities and program providers all over the world. And now as the founder of Bound International, her work focuses on reconciling environmental sustainability, climate action, and climate justice with global education programs. Well, Welcome, Karen. Hi. Hi. How are you guys? I'm great. It's great to see you. As I told you before we started recording, I'm here for hope, Karen. I'm here for all the hope. Um, so okay. why don't they're we... all going to be solved. Yes. Like all the today. problems. The next the 45 problems, minutes. Yes. In the next 45 um, minutes. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, how are you doing? What's uh, how's, how are things in London? I know you're on lockdown again. We're in lockdown. Um, so, you know, just living my best life on Zoom. <laughs> Yes. That's, that's what else can I say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Texas just hit 1 million cases. So, you know, we always have to win at something, I guess. Right. Right. <laughs> go big yeah. or go home. Right. Is that the <laughs> motto? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it wouldn't be, if, if, if it didn't make me cry, it'd be hilarious. Um, yeah. <laughs> so moving on from that, uh, Karen, why don't you tell us your international education story? How did you get into this little crazy world of ours? Yeah, so it happens like a lot of people who join study abroad or international higher ed many years ago. It's almost like you fall into it. I think now it's more of a structured career. But uh, I was, um, as a bachelor's degree student, going to be a Celtic archaeologist. So, you know, I was living in Scotland, studying in Scotland. I studied at the, uh, or worked at the National Museum of Ireland in Dublin. And then I kind of got away from that and did a master's degree in the UK and kind of focused on comparative ethnic conflict. This was only two years after the Good Friday Agreement was signed there in Belfast. So there was still stuff going on there. Um, and I was there when September the 11th happened. So it was kind of a crazy turn of the century. And then I thought, oh, I know what I want to do. I want to go into the Peace Corps and then I want to be a diplomat. I'm kind of, you know, I'm evolving, right? So I did a Peace Corps service on the island of Antigua in the West Indies. Its sister island is Barbuda, which unfortunately made the news a couple years ago when it got destroyed um, by a hurricane. But I mm-hmm. um, was a community development volunteer. I took the foreign service exam at the, um, mm-hmm. I had to go to a U.S. embassy or consulate. And we didn't have one in Antigua. The only ones in the Caribbean were in the Bahamas and in Grenada, or I'm sorry, Barbados. So I went down to Barbados and took the foreign service exam. Amazing. It was a weird experience. The questions I felt like I could, I gleaned from the questions, what kind of person are you looking for? This is not what I thought it was. It was like trivia about movies and oil drilling. And I just didn't understand it. And 80% of people who took the exam back then didn't pass, by the way, that's like the main screener. So I got my results. I barely not passed, but I decided (laughs) I didn't want to take it again. I was like, I have no idea what you're looking for. And you didn't even ask anything about my skill sets or whatever. Um, So I came home. I was, uh, it, from San Marcos, Texas, where Texas State University is. And I drove by, I was on our town square and I passed this window that said, Academic Programs International. And I went, ooh, ooh. what's that? (laughs) 
And so I sent an email. This is like only like seven or eight years after email came out, by the way. So not everybody <laughs> even had a website back then. So I sent an email to somebody who eventually became my supervisor, Courtney Harnden Link, and she's still with API. And I said, hey, I just got back from the Peace Corps. Are you guys hiring? And she wrote back and said, why, yes. She said, why don't Not you come good. in and talk to us uh, like next week or whenever it was? And I said, okay. And we talked and they were getting ready to open up their Italy program manager. They need a new person. And I said, I went to Italy twice, liked it, you know. Um, oh my God. I love this story only because there's so many people wanting a job in international ed. And they're like, what? Like, yes. why? Why isn't it like that anymore? They want it to be like this. Yeah, exactly. have, it's like, it's like stumbling upon like a good bar. Like you oh, yeah. have to hear from a friend who heard from yes. a friend and then you were in the neighborhood and then you walked around a while and you found it. That's, that's not easy. Exactly. And it just happened. And so anyway, I got the job and that's how I got started. Um, and then I eventually started managing their Barcelona programs and then they're, they just launched their Costa Rica program when I was there. I was like, I've been to Costa Rica. I studied abroad there too. So that's how I got that job. And um, yeah, it just evolved from there. You know, I worked for LDM when they opened their Northern American office. Um, I uh, worked for, I worked for Teen Education Abroad Network yeah. as well as API. So I've got this provider vibe, but then I worked for San Jose State. And then for the past six and a half years until May, the University of Dayton, which is a private Catholic. So I've been involved in all of these different things. And it was probably, it was in 2008, I decided I'm going to get my doctorate. And they had just launched a new EDD program at the University of Minnesota Mm -hmm. in educational policy administration for international educators. And Michael Page was one of the program's (gasps) founders and one of my professors. And don't make me cry. Um, I sent him a text message that summer before he passed away. And I, I had no idea he was sick. And we were just, you know, so I just couldn't believe it when the news came down. I was like, I, I can't believe it. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, so I did that program, met a lot of great people. David DiMaria was in that program, Matt Beatty, um, some of these folks that are really active in NAFSA, we were all mm-hmm. classmates. So yeah, that's how my career got started. Um, and uh, then I did doctoral research, actually looking at internationalization of higher ed in Thailand. That was through my other professor, Jerry Fry. He got me hooked up there. And so I went back as a Fulbright specialist to Thailand as well in uh, 2013. So that was a great experience. But yeah, that's it. Literally, the story is I drove by and saw a sign in the window and called and they said, we are actually getting ready to hire. I mean, it could, it won't happen that way anymore, right? No, it does not. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a question I have, just taking it back a little bit further, because I'm always fascinated by how, how even the concept of travel entered into your life and your universe. So even before you had your first study abroad experience and all the things you listed, which was amazing, but how did, what, what was your first time? What was your first introduction to anything intercultural or international? Uh, well, I hate to say this. Well, I'm saying it because it's an example. The first international trip I ever took was when I was 13. My family decided to go on a cruise to the Caribbean. So, you know, one day in Jamaica, you do Jamaica one yeah. day in the Cayman islands, you do the Cayman islands and you know, you're good. Um, so there was no cultural preparation for that. I just remember this big ship. They had a, a swim up yogurt bar that I was at every day. I, that, you know, that's kind of all I remember. Oh my gosh. Um, but then swim up I, yogurt bar. We need to talk yes. more about that. Not now, but it's <laughs> and I would charge it to the room. I discovered charging to the room. So, you know, a couple days later, finally, oh the my gosh. and we had to have a conversation with my parents, but, um, yeah, so, so just like middle-class ridiculousness, but anyway, um, 
Yeah. So I think as a kid and I got involved in archaeology because I loved history. Like as a kid, I grew up daydreaming about time travel. Like I wanted to go back to the Wild West. I wanted to go to the Middle Ages. I wanted to go, go, go. Yeah. Okay. I don't think that's anything that was taught to me. It's just as you as a kid, you get passionate about things, art, mm-hmm. math, history, reading books, whatever. And that was my orientation. My sister, by the way, is a math teacher. So we're like on planet Mars and Venus when it comes to our <laughs> left brain, right brain. Right. And, um, so I knew I wanted to study abroad. And actually the first time I studied abroad was in the summer of 1997 with School for Field Studies that was still attached to Boston University back yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. And it was in Costa Rica and it was a summer program. And I remember telling my parents about it and they were like, no way am I sending my 19 year old white blonde haired, big old blue eyed girl to Latin America by herself. And I remember telling my mom, well, you know, all of those, um, you know, cash gifts and bonds that granddaddy used to give me every year for my birthday, I sort of just cashed them in and I've already paid for it. And it was just, there was like silence. So um, they really didn't know, like they weren't going to chain me to the bed. So I went and I was nervous. I'm like, I'm just going to show up in like San Jose, Costa Rica. And someone's going to be there to meet me. Like who, what, you know, and this is email had been out in colleges for like a year. You you didn't go online to look at people's pictures. I literally wrote out my application, you know, like eight pages. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then you got a packet back two months later. That's right. And if if that packet was your life, if you got on an airplane without it, you're done. Um, And you had to know how to use a payphone to to call someone for help. Uh, There was no mobile phones. So uh, yeah, so it was a great experience that, but that was my first one. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, that. Well, now that I said it like about the mailing back and forth and I'm like, is that a climate impact thing we should, we should be discussing as well? <laughs> Cause now we can email. Is that better? I don't know. Um, so let's get onto our topic at hand today. Um, I'm curious, like with all your background in what I would say is like very traditional study abroad, like sending students abroad from the United States, receiving them from the United States, working on a site with program providers. What, what got you into the issue of um, climate change and the impact uh, that international education has on, on that uh, issue? Well, yeah, I remember that actually it was in almost two years ago. It was like January of 2019. I was at UD, their director of education abroad and partnerships. And I saw a posting on LinkedIn by Brian Whalen. And it was just like a little thought piece. It wasn't like a link to a bigger article. He was like, sustainability and study abroad are the two compatible. What can you do on your campus um, that makes study abroad a little easier to do? And, it, it, and I think the only recommendations were kind of like plant some trees, maybe. I mean, it really didn't go into yeah. a whole lot of depth. And I remember forwarding that article to my supervisor at the time, Amy Anderson. And I said, hey, Amy, you think we should talk about this? And she was like, Yeah. And so what we did is we invited in a colleague, we set up a meeting with Dr. Ben McCall, who's the director of our Handling Sustainability Institute, who I don't think his title is chief environmental officer, but that's basically what he is at UD. Mm -hmm. So let's just have a meeting. There's no agenda. We don't even know what to ask, but let's talk. And what you'll find is a lot of people in sustainability have traveled or lived abroad and they loved it. So it's not like they, you know, they're not Greta Thunberg saying, don't ever get on an airplane again, you know, take a sailboat. They love travel. They get it. So we had this meeting and we just brainstormed. And um, one of the points that actually came out of the meetings, we were talking about how we purchase bus trips for all these students on faculty led programs. And we do buses because they're cheaper. You know, you got to save money because these are expensive programs. 
And we talked, we kind of arrived at the conclusion that if we actually did a more affordable or, or more uh, sustainable mode of transportation, like electric trains or undergrounds, you could then take that extra cost and um, potentially receive carbon credits. So that might actually wind up being cheaper and better for the environment. And we were sitting there going, whoa, yeah. we didn't actually do anything after that meeting. <laughs> we just, we just had a session, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and then we got involved in other things and I wound up leaving like seven or eight months later from that role before I went to work for the law school. So, um, so that's, that's how it kind of came up. And um, in, in, in my work in NAFSA, I'm currently the past chair of the Education Abroad Knowledge Community. It's coming up more and more. Just There's been kind of a groundswell of people talking about this. And then CANI was launched last fall, yep. uh, the Climate Action Network for International Education by some folks uh, in, uh, over in Oceania, Australia, New Zealand. And it was like, here we go. You know, this this is becoming more and more relevant. And I think also the the... The Paris Climate Agreement was in 2015. We had um, a presidential administration that decided, oh, we're going to take get out of Paris. And I mean, things were happening um, kind of simultaneously. So I thought we really need to put a keen eye on this. And that's what got me really interested in it. And I think access issues and study abroad that we continue to have, um, climate change is, 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 you know, extremely important. It's a critical period in our time. It's a crisis. And then the onset of the pandemic, I think all three of those factors really just hit this past spring. And that inspired me to, to found Bound International. So that's where we are. Yeah. Interesting. Incredible. Sam, did you? Have well, it's, uh, yeah, I just wanted to jump in because it's interesting being on the sort of on-site delivery side of, of education abroad um, until recently. Um, it's also something that people, like you said, it started as a little nugget and then more and more people were talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, um, so in London, um, in the UK, we have um, a really active community of international educators, um, ASAP, the American Association of um, Study Abroad Programs in the UK very long title. Um, and in a lot of our sessions that we had with our members, this came up more and more and from students as well. So this is what was interesting is mm -hmm. that students were bringing up, you know, what are the sustainable options? Um, and so I don't think it just came, I, I think it's coming from both sides. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. It's not just coming from those of us that are working in the field, but also from students because, you know, do they, are they going to want to travel in the same way? Because students are really clued in to the impact on the environment. And, and I think that is something that they're using as a deciding factor in their education. I'm saying that, I don't know if that's true. I don't know what your experience is of that. Yeah, something I've read something, you know, along the lines of, you know, climate change is one of the most important issues to millennials. Right. But with Gen Z, it's maybe like the top issue. Yeah. Um, so I think I think young people are just uh, scared, you know, through their protests, through their marching, gun violence. They're saying, you know, you guys, are, you're, you're leaving us. You're going to leave us a crap planet. And <laughs> we are dealing with so much financial, another financial crisis. Thanks. Um, gun violence, like never before. Thanks. Yeah. Climate change. And I also think that you know, like everything, everything kind of builds momentum. And I think that we're also getting more and more in tune to this concept of climate justice and environmental justice, yeah. where you have a lot of people coming from uh, lower, lower income backgrounds. Um, and unfortunately, that also means disproportionately people of color who are saying, it's just normal to grow up, not surrounded by greenery. We all have asthma in the family. How can that be? 
um, because then you look at where they're living and, and the way industry works and, it, you know, and then everything proliferates on social media and the internet. These are digital natives, mm-hmm. you know, communicating online is not one way to communicate. It is the way to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. And so the amount of information going around um, broadly, but also amongst your network, it's just, it picks up and images and sound bites go so fast. Yeah. And so that's really built up. But yeah, these students are, they want to be a part of the discussion. They want to affect change. Um, they're looking, I think, for leaders, not just at the highest levels, but at colleges and universities. And we've seen the rise of sustainability programs and offices and staff yes. on college. I think it's like grown exponentially just in 10 years. So we got to get together, you know, Ed Abroad and international programs have to get together with those folks. They don't naturally operate in the same space. You know, we're always thinking of over there and they're thinking right here. Yeah. But we have to utilize each other's strengths because we can plan and design together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I want to bring up the elephant in the room. <laughs> so one of the big, probably uh, conundrums dichotomies, oxymorons, I don't know, whatever, yin and yang of our, of our field is the fact that um, moving people around the globe is, a, is one of the biggest, it's not the biggest, we also know big corporations like the top whatever it is, 10 companies in the world like emit more CO2 than all humans combined or something. Don't quote me on those stats. I kind of just made them up, but it's something ridiculously (laughs) outlandish like that. But the idea here is that moving people around the world has a huge impact on uh, CO2 emissions. That's just how it is. And so how do we reconcile the idea that we literally are in the business of moving people around the globe? I mean, I know there are other, you know, learning objectives and things we want to, but our, our MO is that by putting people in other cultures and other spaces, they will then have the opportunity to have this learning. So how do we reconcile that? How do we, how do we move people around, keep doing that? And then also say, but let's be more sustainable. Yeah. Firstly, I think you need to sit down with your sustainability colleagues and talk about your values. So there's so much value in learning and traveling across borders. People are not static. We have always moved. Mm -hmm migration, academics, profession, fun, that's not going to stop. And it shouldn't. I mean, think about all the soft power we accumulate on a daily basis by interacting with each other, just as tourists, as students, Mm -hmm. there's so much value in that. So we have, how do you preserve that? But then again, we have this crisis, right? With our planet. So right now um, there are ways to travel sustainably. You can ride a bike, you can uh, row a boat, but if you want to get anywhere significant, we still have the combustible engine model of transportation. Mm-hmm. That's not going to change, but you're seeing changes take place. So, um, for example, just some quick stats that the majority of carbon and methane that is really impacting our atmosphere, that is causing rise in temperatures, increased evapor- evaporation for hurricanes, floods, at the same time there's droughts because it's leaching from the soil, taking nutrients out of plants, all of that. So um, the biggest offenders are actually the burning of fossil fuels and the agricultural industry. Flying, transportation, I should say, only accounts for about 2% of all carbon emissions in the world. So first of all, don't go jump off a cliff and say that I I studied abroad in France last year and I killed France or something. (laughs) You didn't. Yes. But 2%, we can, you know, outside of flying, there are other things that we can do to control that. So mm-hmm. uh, you have to get involved in, that's just how local impacts global. You know, you've got to look at 
Um, you know, people are moving away from sustainable travel. You know, that sustainable travel is simply the ethos was do no harm. Right. Um, or, um, and then I think we have now regenerative travel, which is, goes a step further and says actually do good. Through your travel, do good. So like the triple bottom line. So what kind of vendors are you using while you're abroad? Do they use recycling compost? What are, are they hiring local communities or reinvesting in the economy? Um, there's carbon offsetting. And then of course, there's a whole conversation about how do you offset? What are the best calculators? Who are the best, most ethical companies? How does it work? But we're seeing the major airlines actually doing this Delta and United and your continental or not continental. Oh my God, they're United now, but you know, they, they're, they're now advertising all these offset plans um, for travel. And you see some study abroad providers doing that as well. So just flying does have consequences, but it's not just flying. You have to kind of look at the entire picture mm -hmm. that it's, it's a multi, it's a complex issue with a multiple uh, answers to address it. Mm -hmm. So just not studying abroad. Okay. You know, first of all, you're losing out on this benefit, but then the impact of your flight and maybe your, your cheap flights around Europe is, is quantitatively not a huge amount. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't agree with the no fly movement coming out of Sweden. Like, okay, you're also in Sweden. You could probably get to Europe easily. In the U.S., we can't get anywhere mm -hmm. unless you're using a combustible engine model of travel. Right. So, um, um, you know, there's, there's organizations like the Intercultural uh, oh, IOI um, with Daniel Ponce Taylor. They're actually have setting up programs abroad. And I know George Washington or American University has done this as well, a program in Kenya. They're actually setting up programs where students are, they're limiting the amount of students that can travel there. They're doing research that is contributing to climate action. They're looking at regenerative agriculture. They're actually helping communities abroad and helping do research and studying and promoting these efforts that are taking place all over the world. So you can convert your programs to, to study these issues a lot better and expand that education. You can have better choice uh, in where you're going. Think about these smaller, lower resource communities that you wanna send 40 students tromping around. Maybe that's not the best idea. Um, you know, there's, um, I mean, there's just a lot of things that you could really do. And I mm -hmm. think carbon offsetting, you could start investing actively as an institution in some of these projects that are taking place all over the world. A lot of universities are starting to divest from their fossil fuel um, investments and revenue that they've been earning, which is good. There, and you can do things locally as well. I mean, some people kind of criticize offsets, like, oh, I'm gonna plant a few trees and that takes care of my flight. Well, not exactly, mm -hmm. but there is action happening in the tourism industry and uh, also in the flight industry and in higher ed. There's a lot of things to do. And so this, you really also need to have on your college campus not only routine meetings and committees and programs that involve the sustainability and international programs office, but also people from different disciplines that are putting a different lens on how you can do better business practice, better agriculture, better resource management. So it, it's really complex, but there's a lot of different things you can do and not feel bad about the fact that you flew to France last year and probably wound up killing somebody as a result, or we'll never get that part of our atmosphere back because I just had to go to France Sure. It's not quite that dire. Mm -hmm. Well, and it sounds like, I mean, there, there could be an actual, a real discussion around, um, you know, if the flights as, as a community, right. If we look at, you know, we'll call it, we're going to call it 400,000 strong. I'm just rounding up, but in terms of participants and professionals in our space, um, if all of us like reduced our, um, meat 
consumption potentially, mm-hmm. or um, choosing how we're feeding students at orientations and where is that food coming from um, in terms of like farm to table movements, things like that. Um, is, is there a possibility, like even, even those kinds of conversations would have maybe even a bigger impact than just this, the flight conversation? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because it all contributes. Um, it all contributes to the problem. You know, when carbon's emitted into the atmosphere, it doesn't just go in a particular place and then maybe you can go wrangle it and, and store it or get rid of it. It yeah. just disperses. So right. there is, you know, there is carbon capture technology coming out, which is fascinating, which is like not even a pay grade I will ever achieve. These are the people that work at like Exxon Mobil and stuff right. that, and petroleum engineers that know how to do this. Um, but there, there are things that are happening. And I know, you know, to give you, to give you some positive notes, you know, and I had to make some notes because there's some numbers here. Here's, <laughs> here's some reason to hope, right? Like yes. all of this. This is why we're here. The hope. <laughs> 8 million hurricanes a year. And they're all category five now and yeah. typhoons and the droughts and everything. Um, but so our wind capacity, like uh, wind energy, wind, you know, to, mm-hmm. to produce energy via wind, in 2000, they estimated uh, a certain number that we would achieve a certain wind capacity by, you know, 2016. We exceeded that by a factor of 22. So our wind technology in like 15 years okay. exceeded expectations by a factor of 22, 22 times more than they thought. Wow. Our solar energy market grew 121 times greater than we thought uh, 20 years ago. So the solar energy market is, has exploded. Um, our ability to store energy. So batteries, like you think of like, you know, your hybrids and your car batteries and other larger batteries as well. Um, those, uh, hit what three gigawatts of capacity in 2016, but we project it's going to be 900 gigawatts um, per battery in 2040. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, solar panels, I think, or led lighting, is now 95% of the lighting market compared to like 30 oh, wow. years ago. Okay. So, I mean, we are producing things fast. It's kind of like the, the battery. Remember the first iPods, the yeah. white brick yeah. and like, happy. and the battery died after like a year and it like almost exploded in your hand. And think of what we have now. I mean, just yeah. how fast technology yeah. moves. And that's not something we necessarily read in the papers every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things going on that really give us cause for hope. But don't think that deciding to reduce your meat consumption or putting solar panels on your house, using LED lighting, um, you know, working, going to work in an industry where you have sustainable business practices at the firm you're going to be at. You know, Amazon's hiring people right now that have sustainability backgrounds to look at their operations and say, how do we make this more sustainable? Do we need an electric fleet of vehicles? Let's run the numbers. These jobs are opening up. So, um, Thing, everything does add up and contribute because by the way, there's not a magic bullet. If we stopped flying, which I'll, I'll use an example, your pandemic hit, right? And in May, June, something like that, I read two articles. One, both of them had pictures. One had a picture of Los Angeles, the skyline. Yes. It's blue skies. And the other I think one, I saw something similar for Beijing as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Beijing. And then there was one from uh, Delhi, New Delhi. Yeah. And it was a clear day and you could see the Himalayas. And in the article, people said, we haven't seen the Himalayas in like 50 years. So the reality is in this one article about LA, the scientist said, well, actually, I don't know, the particles per million or whatever of carbon in the atmosphere only decreased by 4% kind of at the start of the pandemic. But those pictures were powerful. Yeah. And it made people think, okay, we stopped driving and flying 80 to 90% for two months and look what we did. Yeah. 
this is achievable. Mm-hmm. You know, you yeah. could, you could really affect positive change. So, um, you know, flying, I think flying, it gets us places. We have to go places for very important reasons, but do you need to send your people to a conference every month in wherever? Are there programs that you can convert online? Well, you have to incorporate virtual learning now in your international programs portfolio. It's no longer some separate, whatever, if you want to do this, let me know how it goes. It is the, it, it really is the future of international higher education, but it's not going to replace physical travel, but there's just so many things that you can do. And I think that that planning process, you have to get all those expertise, all that expertise at the table on your university mm-hmm. and we're universities. We have them. We have the experts right there oh, with yeah. us every day. Yeah. Sit down and map this puppy out because you don't want, you can't move resources around until you feel confident that it's going to make a difference. And one of the things that we do, I'll just do a quick plug, is that we have our environmental impact reports that we're launching that's actually going to, we're going to curate international programs, our study abroad programs at U.S. colleges and universities, and look at the entire activity on the ground and actually map out and quantify your impact as a result of that program. Because once you have the data, you can make decisions. Right now, we're all sitting around thinking, yeah, I think study abroad sucks for sustainability. (laughs) We don't know. I, I took chemistry yeah. once and biology once. This is in the 90s. Yeah. Um, and sustainability people don't really fully understand what we do, even though they've traveled. Yeah. Just kind of sit down and talk it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm really curious because um, when we first started talking, um, you, I think you just finished. I could be getting this all wrong, but tell, tell us about the Climate Reality Project. Yes. So that's an initiative that was launched by former Vice President Al Gore um, about, I think, in 2005, 2006. I might get that wrong. And it was an effort to kind of bring, you know, uh, the reality around climate change and how important it is. And, And it's a training program that takes place all over the world, although I did one virtually, surprise, surprise, um, at the end of this past summer. And uh, it's it's free. You, you get admitted to it and you basically undergo you look at a lot of data around what is happening and some of that data I shared with you here. Um, what is the atmosphere in the stratosphere? Why people say global warming, but we have record rainfall. That's not warming. You're like, right. actually it is because the hotter it is, the more oceans evaporate and that extra water turns into typhoons and category five hurricanes. And then when it starts raining heavily in places that don't can't absorb water, you have massive floods and mudslides. So it's about educating people about what climate change is. And it also, at the end, kind of like we talked about here, they say, don't worry, don't kill yourselves yet. There's hope. Look at the things that are happening, you know, with some of the things that I told you about. Look how quickly we're able, we're responding to things and making progress. And so what you do after that training is you set up what are called acts of leadership. So this, or I, I go talk to the Rotary Club or go into classrooms or whatever, and we could do the full presentation about what this is, show the images from all over the world, look at the data, look at the trends, talk about the sources and the science, and then yeah. talk about the progress we're making and ask people to join in, whether that's lobbying or your own home consumption or whatever, join in to kind of make this, um, to combat this, because it's going to take everybody on every different level. So that's what that is. Um, that's a that's an Al Gore initiative. Um, so he's he's still at it, you know. <laughs> and you did that, that you said it was free. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they open up training every so often. Um, and because I did the virtual training, maybe, you know, people, they do this training all over the world. So okay. maybe in the past they had some like in Minneapolis or New York. So there was going to be a cost to travel there, um, which is kind of a little ironic, right? You know, that, 
like travel to talk about how carbon emissions are not doing so good for the planet. But again, and I think I'll share one other statistic as well that um, higher education in general mm. um, is apparently responsible for 2% of the United States' overall carbon emissions. So 2% mm. of carbon emissions in the world is transportation, but 2% alone of the U.S.'s emissions comes in some form from higher education. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, and you, again, 2%, who cares? But if you think about 152 million tons of carbon being belched into our atmosphere every 24 hours, mm. and all of a sudden 2% is quite a number. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um you know, that's, that's another stat too. And I think that a lot of colleges and universities are quickly trying to figure out ways to, to combat this. Okay. Um, so, uh, apparently I did the Facebook thing wrong. I don't know. People are having a little trouble finding the video. So those of you who are watching live, hello, I, however you found it, Godspeed to you. I'm glad you did. (laughs) Um, and I was just, I found uh, some people have made some comments in here and, um, uh, in MS, it. I'm so sorry I, if I butchered your name, uh, Miss Williams. Uh, what uh, she asked, what is your view on offsetting emissions versus insetting? And I actually don't know what that is. So oh, yeah, I would well, love first, to learn. I should have put a disclaimer at the start of this. Like, I have a degree in archaeology, Irish studies, and educational <laughs> policy administration. So if you want me to um, go into a whole lot of specifics on chemistry and biology, this is the wrong place. But um, offsetting is. Um, So you have a certain impact through eating meat or traveling or your agricultural practices. And what you do is you decide to invest in um, an activity that actually helps either capture carbon or purify the air somehow. So one popular thing to do is there are forest reserves and rainforests that exist and you could purchase or acquire a plot of that land and invest in it to grow more, to increase the foliage, to protect the habitat. And that kind of offsets your, um, it's kind of like a swear jar. You know, I said mm-hmm. bleep, and then I put in a dollar. And so right. some people criticize that because they're like, again, carbon, it just goes in the atmosphere. It's still swearing, right? And it's then still somewhere in, you know, me and Mar, you're planting a tree. Like right. really, is that just to make us feel good as consumers? Well, that's maybe a legitimate criticism. Um, and there are best practices for investing, by the way, there are certain companies or practices that are better than others. Okay. In setting, I believe, and I might, um, you know, get an angry email from somebody later is when you actually prevent the carbon emissions, you're, you're looking at more regenerative agricultural practices to begin with. So rather than pooping out your carbon and then trying to do some good over here, you're actually trying to prevent um, those emissions from happening in the first place. Okay. okay. So, so um, I, I think it's, um, oh gosh, you guys, I'm so sorry. IOI, Intercultural Something Initiatives. Um, they do <laughs> insetting, carbon insetting on their study abroad programs um, okay. or on one of their locations. And this is just that. And so they host students, but then they actually get them involved in the insetting pr- agricultural practice on site. So- I might have that a little bit wrong or left out some key details, um, but that's that's my understanding. Awesome. Okay. I'm going to ask afterwards if you might send us a couple of links that you think would be good resources, and we'll put them in the show yes. notes so people can do some further further research and learning on their own. Um, I, here's another great question I'm going to summarize because she wrote quite a bit here. Um, uh, so there's... 
often an interchange between um, environmental injustice and social and racial injustice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to give you a light, 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 easy uh, question right here. Um, yeah, so keep in mind you're asking a blonde haired woman literally named Karen. So. Right. And I don't expect any of us, you know, anywhere really to all, all have the answer, but I, I'm just curious the conversations you've been having, especially with universities. And because I think diversity and inclusion and social justice have become I mean, I feel like I've always talked about social justice and I don't know if it's because I studied higher ed and I've always worked in higher ed and I feel like it's always been at the forefront. And Mm. I feel like the rest of society is kind of like, oh, I'm learning about this, these concepts and ideas now and these issues. Um, But I think that even now more than ever is so at the forefront, that is the conversation. My whole LinkedIn feed is all about webinars, about diversity and inclusion, which is so important. Um, And so how do we balance um, or, you know, those things are often intertwined. And so what, what have been your conversations with universities on how they're trying to tackle two very important issues, um, that might need very different responses. What, what have been some best practices or good conversations you've had? This is anecdotal. We do not have the answers, everybody. So yeah. Yeah. Neither <laughs> do I. Your expectations. Um, somebody By the way. Please put um, it in the chat. If you have the answer, then share. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I don't think social justice as a concept is ever going to go away because I think human nature, we, we tend, we're socialized in certain ways. Um, there's just too many facets to our society that shape us into doing things either overtly or unconsciously that lead to bias and discrimination. And so uh, the fact that this, you know, our march for social justice exploded again in June, um, it, it wasn't just one event or a few events. It, it, it's just people tolerate it and then it hits a point where we can't tolerate anymore and there's an exploit. That can't be a cycle or a pathway that we're on. Yeah. Um, notions of conscious bias and unconscious bias. Um, and knowing that that racism is is systemic and, and you know, people, you know, we all had conversations with friends or even reflected on ourselves about, you know, and gotten into disagreements about what that means. But um, you think of environmental justice, for example, the fact that power plants and um, primary emitters are being put intentionally in lower income areas because of tax benefits and there's, you know, um, a lower tax base and there's not enough influential power in politics. And so you have people of a certain income growing up with all kinds of health issues and um, it, it, these, it just shows you how it's embedded in, in what we do. So, so we always have to be conscious about what biases exist. And I think what we're trying to do now is we're getting into a really complex area that most people aren't navigating outside of education and aren't used to. I mean, if you've ever been to Thanksgiving and you, know, and you have your crazy Uncle Joe and you're trying to explain to him systemic racism, you know how that's going to go. Yeah. You know, and but then I, I think it's just, it's increasing consciousness. I actually applaud the fact that we have this meme now called Karen, because I can tell you as a white female, when I first heard that term and people were talking about what it means, I was like, I know exactly what a Karen is. <laughs> yes. And you know what? Maybe I know what it is because I am one, because mm. I've done it before. Maybe I thought it and didn't say it, but come on, we have to, we have to reconcile with this. And so we need to start opening up our consciousness to other people's experiences, their lived experiences, um, their, uh, what they see every day um, versus what we see, how they're hearing things compared to how we're hearing things and be conscious of that 
and you're asking people to just simply be more conscious and mm -hmm. that consciousness yeah. also requires a lot of reflection and that it, it, it's not an easy thing to do and so it the way i see it social justice is tied to environmental justice and climate justice it, it's the impact having on people and populations that are disenfranchised that are marginalized and now we put them in a position to where they're suffering the most because of climate change. The harm to our planet is not happening equitably. Um, we can purchase solar panels at my house. I can, I can not uh, eat meat. I can zoomify my job. Well, guess what? If you start breaking down the demographics, what does it look like? People that look like That's me it. and grew up like That's me. It. Who can do, yeah, who has access to the, yeah. All of a sudden the numbers start getting skewed. And that is not by chance. That is by choice. That is choices being made over centuries mm. that keep leading to where we are. So um, I don't know how to answer that question, but I see it as very related. Um, and there are a lot of people doing really good work to bring attention to the voices of these communities around climate change. Like, hey, don't just decide you're not going to do your vacation in Paris, Karen, you know, <laughs> um, or I'm going to become vegan because it's like totally cool. Um what about my whole family? There's 16 of us. We all have asthma, even the baby. Explain right. that to me. I've never, we, we can't walk to a park. There's one tree on my whole street. Right. Let's talk about this. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that they're very interrelated. Mm -hmm. Well, I, uh, I'm from Kansas. I still live in Kansas city and I went home this weekend to visit um, family briefly and um, it's harvest time in Kansas, soybeans. It's the moment of the soybean right now. Uh, a couple of months ago, a few weeks ago, it was uh, corn. Um, most of the, the products that, you know, I was, I posted on my Instagram, like I was in the combine, like checking it out. And, you know, I was even uh, discussing um, with a family member about, you know, the results of the election and um, how, how specifically would impact what he was doing right then in terms of we're in a combine. And if you guys aren't familiar with a combine, they cost about half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. um, so this is not just like a, a little farm vehicle. This is a huge investment. And we were talking about, um, you know, he was like, well, if Biden's in, um, I know that he had, you know, um, was really focused on helping our uh, fuel prices not be so high. Um, and he was really, you know, focused in on that. That was something that was important to him. And he's like a working farmer. That's what he does for a living. Um, and, and then we started talking about how I'd heard, um, on whatever NPR or something like that, about how the, the, all of the vehicle, you know, auto companies made a huge profit in the third quarter this year, huge profit. And the main reason for that is like, most of us aren't commuting, commuting anymore, which thinks, which makes you think they wouldn't buy a car, but instead they're splurging on the, um, like the, the big expensive vehicles, the big, you know, right. trucks the and the big SUVs. Yeah. yeah. Um, because they're yeah. like, well, I don't have to worry about like commuting every day and being fuel efficient. Oh, right. So but what was really fascinating is that all the car companies are really excited about this big windfall of cash. Cause one, they've all paid back any money they borrowed to the government. And then two, they've all invested tens of millions of dollars this year in electric vehicles. Cause right. they want by the end of 2021 to have a whole fleet of just normal cars that are all electric that that can obviously compete with what's already on mm -hmm. the market, but you know, the Teslas of the world. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be really fascinating about at least, I don't know, just like sitting in the combine, listening and talking about fuel prices. And then also like hearing on the news, like all the gas, the car companies are like 
we're going to uh, go all in on uh, electric. Um, I have no other commentary other than I thought those conversations were just really weird. <laughs> in that yeah. moment, I was like, wow, look at all these people really concerned about a very similar issue, but for different reasons. Um, and, you know, soybeans is mostly for yeah, ethanol. Yeah, farmers are very, oh, okay. You know, uh, soybean, you know, soybeans, that's where they go is in ethanol. So making a different type of fossil fuel more efficient, that's debatable. We don't have to go there. Uh, but I don't know. Thoughts? Yeah, well, okay. Economically, let's look at some numbers. Uh, yeah. You know, I think it was back in 2014, the Department of Defense said, if the department, our Department of Defense, Okay, you know, the Department of Defense in the world, you know, we have the biggest budget, we spend the most, you know, we have a lot of we have a lot of clout and power said in 2014 that if climate change does not get under control, we're going to have massive problems because of it leads to migration, which redistributes resources and then it causes social strife. It's going to lead to pandemic. Hello. I don't, I'm not going to say coronavirus is related to climate change, but I'll let somebody else debate that point. Um, But in 2018 alone, the, the world faced $160 billion in losses directly related to climate change, flooding, mudslides, fires. Okay, California's on fire for the second time. And Australia yeah. might be on fire again this winter, which is their summer, because it happened yeah. last year. Yeah. Um, and then in 2019, it was $140 billion loss. This is based on insurance estimates. So the fact that we're not, you know... Yeah. A lot of this, a lot of the carbon emitting and methane emitting offense does come from agriculture. Farmers are not the bad guys, mm-hmm. but why aren't we looking at more regenerative agricultural practices, which might actually lead to them being more successful mm-hmm. and have, uh, you know, a better standard of living themselves and make more money. Um, because what they're doing is also impacting, you know, it, it's quite literally helping cause hurricanes. Like it's all, mm-hmm. it's all connected. Mm-hmm. And another thing is with climate change that, that rapidly heats the planet and sucks what it sucks moisture out of the ocean to produce flooding. It also is sucking moisture out of the soil. So soybean, corn, rice, the nutrients in those, you know, why do we eat corn and rice and things in wheat? Mm. It makes us healthy, but the nutrients we rely on are not actually showing up anymore in the crops the way that they used to because the soil's being leached. So, you know, when you're talking with, with farmers and agriculture, they are not the enemy. Um, but look at, you know, how do, how do we better help them? You know, we also know that the Dust Bowl was man-made. I did not even know that till like seven or eight years ago. I watched the PBS documentary based on the book. And I said, that was all because you had over farming being done incorrectly. Oh my mm-hmm. God. You know, sometimes I the mean, the where I grew up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, my grandpa used to tell stories about like, he would work summers just clearing trees, you know, and where I grew up and everyone thinks Kansas, they think wizard of Oz, the black and white part, there's just nothing. And there, you know, during the dust bowl, it definitely was like that, but it's just because like, where my family's house sits right now, it just used to be a, I mean, I would call it a forest. I mean, it was, all trees. And now it's like all these like strategically placed trees where they've cleared out for pasture grazing, but also for, uh, one of the things I will say was like, was very interesting. And I learned a lot about it, um, from my family this weekend is the idea of cover crops. Um, and this is it, this is for the same reasons of like helping to rehabilitate the soil, um, and the nutrients there. And so what they'll do is they basically, they 
plant the soy, they plant the crop, whichever crop it's going to be. And then they plant what's called a cover crop. So in this case, I think it was beets and a thing. I can't even something, it has the word kale in it, but it's not kale. It was like, what is that? They're like, we didn't know either. We just learned about it, but they plant those things. And then those things basically die and, you know, basically regenerate into the soil. And then the, um, the soybeans in this case grew, grow up from there. So they have more nutri- nutrients to bring. They also, um, kind of add some protection to the soil from the sun. If it's a really hot summer, it was really fascinating. I was like, hi, I, I love learning about these things. Um, but it, it, it's, it's really exciting to see those types of things happening because, you know, generations of, I come from generations of farmers. It wasn't always like a three product, you know, farm, uh, yeah. system where they was like corn, wheat, and soybeans. That's really almost all big farmers, um, grow anymore. Cause that's the only thing that pays. And the reason they yeah. pay is because most of the soybeans and most of the corn that's grown is not edible. It's not going into our food. It, it is, but it's going in as like corn syrup or filler of some kind. It's like this yeah. nice, big, sweet corn, the corn on the cob that you like in the yeah. summertime. That is not the corn that they are growing in mass <laughs> because one, yeah. it's a lot harder to pick because it has to be softer. They have to pick it earlier. And so when the combine goes over, it destroys half of it because it's so soft and delicate. Yeah. Whereas field corn, I know I'm going too far off the rails. I here. just had no, this is, nope. I had no idea. Nope. Field, whereas <laughs> field corn is, is not tasty, not good. And it's mostly, it's much harder and it's much easier to uh, harvest because it, it doesn't get eaten alive by the machinery. Anyway, I'm going to stop. Let's see, here's the thing we can figure <laughs> out. We're st- yeah, we're still on this like mid 20th century agricultural yeah. half a million dollar combine woof 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 because we've got to meet a timeline we've got to produce so many bushels or mm-hmm. barrels right but you know and i would encourage anybody who's not read the book i can't remember who the author is but it was on the dust bowl it was an award-winning book and then they made it into a documentary and when you watch it you're like it just it's another example the earth speaks to us and i'm yeah. not i'm not getting all spiritual food. i'm just saying <laughs> oh yeah metaphorically it speaks to us and says you're hurting me or this is what you want to do. This is yeah. how we fight back. I mean, yeah. so we need what's to be the name of the documentary? Oh, uh, well, I think it's literally called the dust bowl. I will look okay, it up okay. and I will share it. Um, great, but great, great. If you don't want to read a book, it's a great documentary. <laughs> Um, uh, another person recommended in the comments here, kiss the ground on Netflix is a great documentary that goes in depth on how regenerative agriculture can save soil and pull carbon from the atmosphere. Awesome. Cool. Thank you, Allie. Thank you. I'm going to watch that tonight. That's amazing. Um, we also have another question and it's a kind of big one. I looked it up because it's, you know, it's a big a big uh, policy framework for the United Nations. But Tom asked, how do you view the role of the UN and the sustainable development goals um, in the field? How does it apply to the field of international education, study abroad? Would love your inputs. Can I just add to that as like an overarching question, just because I want to make sure um, that I definitely am interested in that question, sort of how that ties in, but also even a bigger question, you know, what is the future of study abroad given climate change? Like, how do you see that? Sorry. Two very big questions, but I just wanted to throw that at you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The SDGs as they're known, they, they provide a framework, right? These are the critical issues we have determined with the international community and with mounds of experts, you know, and they've got them all listed there, peace and social justice, education, mm-hmm. climate action, um, and so forth. And so what universities can do, I mean, at UD, we actually put together uh, kind of like a mini conference on campus about this. We had faculty share how they're going to incorporate some of these principles into their curriculum and how to source that material. 
Um, I went to the ACI conference, which I don't know if you've heard of ACI. It's uh, American Association or for Sustainability in Higher Ed. Okay. Like that. okay. And it's, it's their NAFSA. It's the sustainability officer on your campus. They're part of ACI, like we're a part of NAFSA. Mm-hmm. And they had, a, they had a conference recently and they had someone talk about this. And they literally had at one institution, they had mapped the SDGs, SDGs across their entire curriculum on campus. They, they actually altered their lear- student learning outcomes to align with the sustainable development goals. And then administratively, from a policy standpoint, what can you do to also try to align with the SDGs and how do you map that all? So that is an exercise universities can take. It just provides a framework um, that, that was put together by an international community of experts. So it's, it's pretty legit. Um, and your other question, Sam, is, okay, the future of study abroad. Yeah. First of all, we want to get back on planes. We should get back on planes. We want our scholars to come here and go there. We want our faculty to teach abroad. We want our students to go. Let's start planning our trips a little better. How are students getting to the destination? Are they direct flights or are they not? Because that's actually a difference. Yep. Um, do you want to look into carbon offsets? What airlines are you using that have those packages included? What study abroad providers have those? How do you educate students? You know, pre-departure, it's like, where am I living? What's the food like? A little bit about culture, blah, blah, blah. Start talking to students early about the impact they're going to have just by literally flying around and then getting to Europe or the Caribbean and bopping around to different countries and states. Okay. How do they think and change their behavior before they plan all these trips? What kind of vendors are we using abroad? Um, Do they have sustainable business planning? How do they... Do they do compost processing, recycling? Where are they sourcing their food from? These restaurants that we're taking students to. Do we have to, should we take them on the underground or train versus buses, even though it seems cheaper to do the other? Um, What train lines are electric versus coal? There's a difference in Europe. You think taking a train is more sustainable, but there are certain lines that are still coal powered. And if you're taking that, you're contributing, Right. right? So um, I think there's just, you know, what topics do we want to expand our sustainable and environmental studies programs? Do we want to do more student research abroad in these areas and send faculty to these areas and host um, folks? Do we, what do we need to convert to online formats as well? All of these things can be considered by study abroad offices, okay. and, but you do need to have the data as well. And that's where our environmental impact reports do come in and can help out their campuses. But there's a lot of things that you can do just sit down and reimagine all of this mm. and explore what the options are. Yeah. How, I would how, add, Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to ask a question that's maybe not fair because I, I, I think this question all the time, how can students be involved um, in, in this as well? Or have you seen good models like Brooks says, have you had good conversations around that? Um, I haven't had any direct conversations with students in a little while. Mm. Uh, but again, that pre-departure phase, you know, we, we say, oh, it's so important to prepare students for culture yeah. and what's getting ready to happen. You need to weave in there their impact that they're having as a result of travel. First of all, they're not doing evil. OK, don't frame it as that. But let them know that as a result of your trip, this is what's happening to the atmosphere. This is how all these other things in society contribute. It's not just you. When you're planning your side trips, when you're eating out at restaurants, when you're using certain tourism vendors, you need to make a conscious decision about who you're using and why and how frequently and when and all of that. And what are those resources you need? Are there apps out there or companies or websites or, you know, for you to navigate these things? And maybe you just want to take the upper hand and plan the whole thing out sustainably to start with. 
right. you need to let you need to clue students in. They are a receptive audience to this. Okay, they are a receptive audience. They need to be your partners. You can't put the whole burden on the university or the tourism industry. Travelers have to evolve. Travelers make conscious decisions because yeah. at the end of the day, if they don't want to travel sustainably, businesses have to respond to that because they got to make a dollar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that that, that brings up a, a point I was going to make about how, you know, coming back to kind of a social justice lens on this as well is that sometimes like, even when you're making decisions from a, a environmental sustainability question, like I'm just a random example, like choosing a restaurant. If you're doing a volunteer program, service learning program in Bali, I've been to Bali a lot. So I have very specific examples in my mind, but you know, there are definitely like restaurants that you could, you know, reserve to have a a lunch at that are, have all these amazing environmental sustainability practices. They tend to be, dare I say, a little more bougie, uh, a little more pricey. Um, they, likely they're they're just even within the Balinese society, they're a little more privileged. Whereas you could go, you know, down the road to a little warong, which is like a little tiny locally run restaurant where they may not have a lot of like, quote, you know, environmentally healthy practices, but it's, it is more directly impacting the local community, the dollars you spend there. Um, And it's just so fascinating because I feel like those are the kinds of real, conversations people have to have about like, okay, do we go to the place that is like more built for tourists? You know, they, they have their recycling program, you know, whatever, you know, whatever these things that we're, um, taking off our list of must haves, but also knowing that like, but it's not maybe, um, truly an organization or a company or a restaurant that is embedded in the local society that in an impactful way either. Um, so I just think that those, you know, whether you're choosing a bus company, like you mentioned, um, before, I think we were recording, um, or you're choosing trains or you're choosing, um, your hotels, your boutiques versus your big, you know, big chains around the world, um, they're all going to have like a give and take in terms of its impact, whether it be locally on the local community or on the environment. I don't know. Mm. Is that accurate? Tell I me think, I'm wrong. Think, if I'm know, wrong, tell thing, me I'm wrong. Would, <laughs> I'll start big and go. So I'll just say to students, you know, be cool. You, you know, these things now you're getting awareness about these things. You need to actively learn more, read more, find more. And you need to be thinking about these things before travel and during travel and after travel, you need to have some consciousness there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's also there's short-term and long-term problems as well. Short-term, this is not going to happen overnight. So also part of regenerative tourism, which is starting to maybe eclipse sustainable tourism, by the way, mm-hmm. is it also has a human or a demographic element to it. Mm-hmm. It is not just, where are they getting their food? Are they using LED lighting or solar panels? It's, right. Are they hiring people from their community? Mm. Are they training people and putting them in management positions? Yes. Because, you know, we've been to those places where there's this nice hotel that's probably owned by Marriott or, you know, something. And so, you know, most of the profits are going out of the country somehow. And then there's all these kind of folks who are selling their wares and their trinkets and they're living maybe day to day. But if that hotel had more local management and kept that money in country and then hired and trained those folks, they make better wages. They're still a part of the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. And then you also funnel tours their way. 
so that they can lo local tours that because that's their home they they can do it probably better than anybody that money stays there and income theoretically can increase for those folks and more job stability as well so that's part of the regenerative uh, tourism um, concept as well of transformational travel so that's that that does bring in a social justice element to it as well so be thinking about where mm -hmm. you're going and what is what are the, even those hiring practices look like for what you can find out Right. Well, yeah, I was talking I like to that. Sam earlier and just like even outside of just environmental sustainability, we were chatting about, you know, balancing this, you know, with the coronavirus pandemic and people not traveling because we don't want to spread um, the disease any more than we absolutely need to um, or have to. And uh, but yet, you know, a place like Bali or a place like Florence or a place anywhere in the world that like really relies on tourism dollars yeah. to, you know, whether, you know, whether it's a big corporation or a small mom and pop operation, um, they're really suffering right now. And so there is, I feel like yeah. it's a whole other, you know, discussion, but like the balance of they yeah. need us to survive. But then now that calls into question, like, why do they need us, you know, as the tourists, the foreigners, whatever, to, to survive? That's a whole other um, equity issue, I think for sure. Um, yeah. So this, how do we re like, if you're reimagining agricultural practices. Why can't we reimagine tourism yeah. and businesses until there's enough of a collective response that it forces that change. And then people start doing, you know, electric cars were poo-pooed for a long time. Yes. And then it just got to a point where it couldn't be poo-pooed anymore. Mm -hmm. And then car Look companies had to invest and it, it, so that's short-term and long-term solutions. Mm -hmm. But I would tell students, be cool. Don't think that you're killing the planet just because you wanted to go to Bali or you go to study abroad in France. There's so much benefit from going as well. That don't forget the social and political and mm -hmm. security benefits of going. Mm -hmm. But this um, is the impact. This is the impact of you going. So mm -hmm. like right. being upfront about it. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you yeah, off. Yeah, no, no, you're right. But just be thinking about it. So when you're going to, you know, book a, a hotel online, are you looking closely when you're picking restaurants or places to eat, when you're thinking of a tour operator, operator, somebody to give you a tour, when you're looking at, I mean, is there a city council there locally that is actively working on keeping tourists off the beach because you're destroying it? So do you want to go vacation there and lay on the beach and contribute? I mean, just kind of, just kind of look into these things. Um, <clears throat> so I would talk, don't have a lot of anxiety, but have that consciousness as well. Well, we're at the hour. I want to have one last uh, discussion about a topic, um, kind of slightly shifting gears, but I think um, it's sort of a result of this idea of like us not moving due to a pandemic, us not moving because we're concerned about our impact on the environment. Um, uh, I've been saying for years how the future of work is remote. Um, and I knew you know, for me, I'm like, obviously I could not anticipate a pandemic either, but uh, realizing that, oh, the future of international programs could also be remote and i.e. virtual, i.e. online. Um, what do you think, uh, how do you think, you know, this time next year, let's, let's just wish high, ha hope well that we have a, a vaccine, the world is okay, there's no coup d'etat in the United States, whatever, <laughs> all things are good. Um, and we can start traveling again safely. Um, how do you think study abroad moves forward uh, with this new influx of online learning and online capacity building for international programs? Um, how, how do you think it's going to shift or change or continue when we are literally moving again? Well, most people in our field have, have agreed. I haven't seen one person yet in a posting or a discussion that they think that virtual international learning is going to go by the wayside. Mm -hmm. 
it's here to stay. Now, having said that, this is where when you work with your campus, you think this is part of our, our menu now is this online international learning. I think you have to start with the learning outcomes. Why do we even care if yeah. students study abroad? Why, why do we care? Why do we even have international students here? Right. Is it just because they bring in money? I mean, that's a cynical way of looking at it. But, you know, and then people make money from study abroad programs. So if if you look at their learning outcomes, what do you expect students? What skills do they need to have? What awareness do they need to have? Their critical thinking, digital literacy, um, understanding different cultures, either um, individually or the concept of culture. If those are still your learning outcomes, and I would argue that they should they should be. Can you convert those? Can you can you still achieve those outcomes to a significant degree in online learning? And if the answer is yes, then that's it. They stay. Now, I don't think online international learning like COIL, which is also something that we do, but yeah. COIL and virtual exchanges are not replacing study abroad. We should not enter into that mindset where, you know, online is replacing. No, online is complementing. Mm-hmm. Okay, because there's there most students just will not study abroad even before the pandemic. It's just not going to happen. But maybe they can graduate with a four year degree and say, I took three or four classes at my university and I had to do projects and study alongside Bolivian students, Chinese and French students. And now I have friends all over the world. We've become good friends. Uh, We worked on projects. I understand their culture better. I had to do a project with them. Here's what I learned about their cultural style and their communication style. They're getting these experiences and skills that we expect from study abroad students. So that's why they remain and also say, okay, does, do we need to sit at UD? We loved the Catholic countries, Italy and Ireland, because we were a Catholic university, but we would maybe run four different faculty led programs to Ireland in one summer. Right. I love Ireland. I used to live there in the Republic as well as Northern right. Ireland. I get it. Um, but what, what do we need to convert some of these experiences online or how do we have online experiences to prepare students for physically tra- physical travel programs? Mm-hmm. Um, how, yeah, I mean, there's, there, I think they just need to say, talk about the learning outcomes and the, and the long-term impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think, I think um, the, the idea of online experiences if they are built well, because I think that's where yeah. we still have a massive learning curve in our field because we have, you know, our bread and butter has been the, the ingrained interpersonal, you know, on the ground experience. And so I, my hope is that a lot of us could make that experience really meaning meaty and meaningful. Um, but then how do we duplicate that um, in an online space that has its own set of challenges and, um, and tools available to it. Um, I think as long as it's designed well, I feel like we are poised to actually blow up the number of students who are, are, you know, can check the box that they have participated in a meaningful intercultural experience. Um, so I think that's really exciting. I also think it's really exciting too. I mean, even beyond the online, but integrating the online with thinking about domestic, um, programs as also an opportunity for, for real intercultural, um, interaction. I know Sam was telling me she just right before we got online earlier, she was like, Oh, I think that is it Berkeley Berkeley was doing something. Yeah. Yeah. Berkeley was launching like a come experience the Bay area, do an internship, like whole thing. And, and I always joke to people, I was like, yeah, I mean, I studied abroad a lot, but like going from Kansas to Boston for college was like the biggest culture shock of my life going from Boston to to study abroad in London. I was like, this is easy. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think domestic experiences can also have, um, a really big moment, I think for us Mm -hmm. as well. It's no longer like the 
the one we kind of tolerate the cousin we tolerate it's like a cousin who's like oh yeah I'm here and I matter <laughs> right and and be fair too because how many times did we look at study abroad programs and say we're doing this wrong we're doing this wrong we're doing this wrong mm-hmm. and you keep tweaking it and modifying it yeah. and then you'd go to conferences to read about best practices and who are, what are they doing over there oh that's interesting so don't expect coil to be, you know, first of all, it's not a replacement. It's not a competitor. It's a complement mm-hmm. to, to travel programs, mm-hmm. but also it's going to have to go through some iterations too, and get that experience and feedback and those measurements and the quantifying of results and everything. And then it will, it will balance out too. So don't be, don't let anyone on your campus say, well, we didn't see very much movement and on the IDI when we did a couple of coil courses. So we're done. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah, just exactly. hang on. Just hang on. I agree. Well, and I think a big takeaway I have for this and I have for everyone, and this, this comes a lot uh, up a lot when I do my, my business coaching and consulting as well, is that oftentimes, you know, we make a lot of assumptions about what our, our target constituents are. I'm just going to use non-businessy languages, not scare people, but like your target clients, your target customers, which are in our case, are our students that we want to participate. And, you know, oftentimes we'll make assumptions about what they care about, what's important to them, what are their challenges, their pain points, all the things. The only way you're truly going to know is if you ask and you ask on the regular, it can't just be like a one shot deal. We did a survey 10 years ago and this is what came back. Um, it, it needs to be ongoing conversations um, that are both qualitative and quantitative in nature um, and really try to get a pulse of what students right now, like somebody who's 19 years old right now, who I cannot relate to very well in terms of like of experience, what are, what are his or her actual concerns and, and priorities when it comes to these issues? And I think that's really worth asking your students, like putting out an open call, you know, what are you most concerned about when it comes to your impact um, on the environment as it in, as it relates to studying abroad, you yeah. might get a lot of really fun and in, interesting insights from students that you, we would just never even think about. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And, oh, I'm sorry, Sam. No, I was, I was, I was just going to say, and engage with them in a meaningful way. You know, don't do a survey for survey um, sake, just to get that 90, hundred percent response rate. That <laughs> drives me crazy. It's <laughs> a huge bugbear for me. It's it meaningfully engage, get, actually have students give their feedback that you, and they, they know that you care and that you're going to do something with it. Sorry, I'm done. Karen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, I, I t- agree hundred percent and, and faculty know students better than anybody. They're with them every day. They're having to deal with them every day. They're interacting online and in person and they're, they're on top of generational changes and traits more than anybody. So mm. don't forget to include faculty in yeah. on these discussions. Mm. And then I'll also say, just from a resource point of view, Brooke, you said, yeah, don't use some resource that's 10 years old. Well, get this, I have to do a quick plug. The Forum on Education Abroad is uh, putting forth, it's gonna work on a publication and edited book on sustainability in, higher edu- in education abroad mm. in higher ed. And um, actually, I'm actually co-editing that book um, with Pitulia right. and from um, New Zealand from the Eastern Institute of Technology. And we're doing a call for, for proposals for chapters that are due December 11th. So we want sustainability professionals, education abroad professionals. We want potentially graduate student submissions. We want to have scientists, non-scientists. We want to have a very well-rounded um, review of sustainability and education abroad as a new publication that should come out then probably sometime in 2022 because mm-hmm. 2021 is chapter writing, editing, getting it to publish and all of that. So December 11th, call for proposals, look it up on the forum's website. That's going to be a new resource coming soon. Fantastic. 
That's awesome. I think it's a great way to round out this conversation. I think the last thing I would ask you, Karen, is, um, you know, can you give us like that final pep talk about, you know, as, as international educators, uh, we've got a lot, you know, I've got to do my diversity inclusion training and make sure those are equitable. I got to get, you know, my students health and safety, making sure that's good. I've got all the things, I got all the things going on. Why should, um, environmental sustainability specifically be something that I put on one of my front burners, so to speak? Because it's a crisis that impacts the entire planet. Everybody is feeling this. Um, the dollar lost, the lives lost, um, you know, Australia might catch on fire again in, in December and January. We have to care about this. And the other thing is a lot of this stuff is interrelated. How we treat each other and the environment and the economy, it's all interrelated. So, you know, if, if you've, you know, Dayton a year and a half ago, they had three tornadoes hit in one night. Um, if you don't care about that, you should. And the thing is, there are so many solutions. It's a complex issue, but that means it's it's a multidisciplinary solution. So you, you are surrounded by experts. You are one of the experts. What's your thing? What do you bring into the table? Mm. And also the things that you do yourself and your family, it does make a difference because that's how it works. It has to all add up. There's not a magic bullet. And I would get away from this concept. Be careful about I'm doing the diversity and inclusion training or diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm doing this. It's actually all kind of interrelated. It's all about reflection and consciousness and understanding mm. complexity and looking through different lenses. And then saying, once I start looking through different lenses, then I actually have a lot more answers and a lot better answers to some issues and everything is related. So you're already a part of the process and just don't despair because we're making a lot of progress and it, it's true. It sounds like a, a bumper sticker, but even the smallest thing that you do does count. It does matter. And then spread your influence, which is kind of what the climate reality project does spread the influence. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's going to reach a critical mass like everything does. And we're going to be able to do even better things. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what I would say. I love it. Mic drop on love that. It. Amazing. <laughs> um, Karen, if people want to get in touch with you, where should they go to learn more about you and inbound? I'm sorry, not inbound, bound um, international. Yeah. Our website is bound intl.com. Uh, also my email address is Karen. Yes. Like the meme, Karen at bound intl.com. And by the way, Again, I support the notion of the Karen. It's a real thing. It needed to be called out. It needed a name. Now we all know what it is. It's that increase in consciousness. So, yeah, you know, exactly. power to it. You know, I'm not offended. It's fine. Yeah. I can laugh at myself, you know, <laughs> but um, anyway, yeah. So Great. that's our website and that's my email address. Great. Well, we will link up to all that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here, so Karen. Much. It's been Thanks great to meet me. you. I can't believe I've never met you in person before. I don't think, no. um, when you were at University of South Dakota eight million years ago, I think I went to your fair. So oh. don't despair. That was a long time ago. Long time. Ago. Oh, um, thank you for coming to the fair because it was the first one ever at the University of South Dakota. So I feel very proud of that. Thank you for participating in a history making moment. Go Yotes. Go Coyotes. <laughs> yes, uh, that's amazing. Well, I, I'm sorry. I, yes, thank you. And it has been a million years, even though I'm still such a spring chicken. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's not possible. <laughs> um, for those of you listening to the podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. So thank you, Sam. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, have a wonderful wonderful rest of your day and we will see you next time. Bye. All right. Bye. Take care, everybody. Bye.
Once again, thank you so much, Karen, for coming on the podcast. And just a reminder, if you are interested in getting involved in the Global Pro Labs training series for 2021, just go to InsideStudyAbroad.com slash labs to learn more. Our first one is releasing next week. It's delivered live with a Q&A, and we're talking all things marketing and recruitment in global programs. I hope you'll join us there. It's going to be a lot of fun. And just a reminder, if you are listening to the podcast and you like it and you're here all the way to the end, please, if you don't mind, if you would go into iTunes and leave us a review and let us know that you're enjoying the show and you like our guests and you're excited about learning more in each new podcast episode that we release. Reviews on iTunes really do help us get discovered by more people. That would really mean the world to us if you wouldn't mind going and leaving us a review over there. All right, have a wonderful rest of your week, everyone, and we will see you on the inside. Bye for now.